There's no problem too big or small, no issue too hot or cold, and no subject these gentlemen won't talk about. Let's head into the lab to see what they're working to figure out today. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grombach, and we've got a great show for you coming up. This week, Centauri and I were joined by Erica Bailey, a business owner and extensive traveler who has been to North Korea. We had a great conversation that went from how the idea of going to North Korea became a reality, to her experiences while she was there, to her advice to anyone wanting to get started or do more traveling. You can find contact information for Erica in the show notes. If you'd like additional info on any of the things that we talked about, you can also click contact us and we'll get you what you need to make it happen. Thanks as always for listening. If you like the show, please feel free to share it on social media. And that's enough about that. Let's go. Let's get into it and get down to it. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grombacher. Joining me as always is Centauri Minor. Hello, folks. Helping us move from awareness to action this week is Erica Bailey, the CEO of Neurodiagnostic Labs, world traveler, my friend, and recent visitor to North Korea. Welcome, Erica. Thank you. appreciate it. <laughs> Centauri, from your perspective, where do you think is the most dangerous place in the world? Oh. Before I answer this, do you have data on what is actually the most dangerous place in the world? No. Dang. Okay. Uh, most dangerous place in the world. Um, from like a crime standpoint, it's 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 whatever your perspective is. Oh, okay. I'm trying to think. Where wouldn't I want to go? So you uh, might say it's uh, it's Phoenix. I, I'm, 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 I'm probably not sure. Southside Chicago. Um, um, most dangerous place in the world. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Um, let's say. I don't know. We were just talking about this. Egypt. 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 That is not a place I'd like to go right now. All right. Yeah. Well, that, that was my next question would be, would you go there? No. Erica, same question to you. What do you think the most dangerous place in the world is right now? I would assume maybe well, Chicago <laughs> or uh, <laughs> Afghanistan or Syria, I would assume. And, and would you go to Syria? Uh, not at this moment in time. Maybe okay. in a decade or two when it's a little less. You know, when, when I was thinking about asking you that question, part of me said, I think that she'll probably say that she'd go. <laughs> <laughs> I think most people assume that. <laughs> so I was telling Centauri. I do have my limits. Right. I was telling Centauri, I remember I got an email a little while back saying, come and, you know, wish Erica off um, for a happy hour. She's going to North Korea. And I remember thinking, why in the heck is Erica going to North Korea? And and, and you went and, and, and you made it back. So if you would, tell us a little bit about the circumstances that led you to want to go and, and how that process even works. Sure. Yeah, it actually kind of, I don't remember how it originally started. I was Googling something and it came up, Cuba came up and they had a uh, Ironman triathlon there. I thought, oh, that'd be really cool. And then there was this link to other closed-off countries that you could do sports activities hmm. in. And so it was North Korea and Iran were on the list. So I sent an email to, I don't know, 40 or 50 people and said, hey, who's in? Cuba, <laughs> Iran, or North Korea? And everybody said Cuba. I think about six people said Iran. And I had one full person say North Korea. So I went, okay, well, then we'll go. <laughs> North Korea first. 
There it is. Yeah. Okay. And so you you uh, you you had a willing participant, and then do you register with the uh, with the organization that does the the sporting event, or how does that how does that work? Yeah. Well, you know, he really kind of was the driver because he got you know this was I guess on his bucket list, and uh, so he he started making the phone calls and saying, okay, we've got it. Now we've got to spend our money. And at that point, I was like, ooh. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm in, but let me just let me do a little research here. Um, and then he was—he's actually Colombian, so he wasn't even American. And that, at that point, I freaked out that I might be the only American showing up. So I asked him to find somebody else uh, to go along with us. So he ended up finding another friend. And at that point, I said, "Okay, so we've got at least two Americans. We're safe." And uh, he just did a little research, and um, about 2,500 Americans go there a year. At the time, they were going there a year. So I found it a little interesting that way more Americans go than I thought and mm. uh, talked to the group, did a little research on the groups that uh, you know, people can go with. And I went with Choreo Group, and they're the longest-standing tour operator, and they've never had a single incident uh, in 20-plus years. So at that point, I felt pretty safe that I would be okay. And so I'm assuming so, yeah. that... I'm assuming that... Um, since the only 2,500 folks go a year that there's a pretty extensive process to kind of get in, like what, what were some barriers or what were some of the questions that you asked, like get a, you know, get access to go or get a flight there. I imagine there's not too many airlines doing that. So walk us through what, what that process looked like. Sure. So when you sign up with Choreo Group, uh, you fill out a questionnaire saying you're not a journalist. You have to list, list your occupation. And really the only forms that you're signing are that you're not a journalist and that you're not a uh, um, uh, religious, you're not, you're not going to be preaching uh, any type of religion or anything else of that sort. And that you won't bring a Bible in with you. You sign all sorts of forms with them uh, regarding that. And then you submit a copy of your passport. And another, you have to get a photo for your visa there. And Choreo Group really takes care of everything else. So you are flying Choreo Air, or Air Choreo, which is the North Korean airline. So they actually have the worst safety record in the world, and that's because they don't report any statistics whatsoever. Mm. So they are the lowest ranking. Go figure. Yeah. Weird. <laughs> and you do get free food and a lot more room than American Airlines. But uh, beyond that, it, was, it wasn't the most pleasant flight. Okay, fair enough. All right, so you get cleared, and now you've you've you, you've paid your money, and now it's how, how much time do you have between that moment and when you actually fly there? Is it a week? Is it a month? Is it six months? Um, well, in my case, they actually stopped visa, so Ebola was you know kind of a scare at the time, and they had you know it was here in Texas, and they they stopped everybody from going, so they closed down the whole thing. Um, the tour guides for Choreo Group kept saying, well, they're going to open it back up. And I want to say it was only a couple of weeks before we left that they opened it back up and granted the visa. So maybe three weeks, I want to say. It it was a pretty short time frame. And you weren't even sure if you were going to be able to go? No, it was called off. So we Hmm. especially got the news it was called off, and then they said, well, I think they're going to change their mind. They'll just stay posted. So I kept my airline ticket, uh, but it was definitely questionable whether or not we'd be able to go. Was there ever a sense of relief thinking, okay, I'm not going to have to go? Or was it just pure disappointment saying, shoot, I'm not going to be able to go? 
Yeah, by that point, I had done all the research for myself, but I felt fairly comfortable going at that point in time, and things are different now, but um, then I thought it was okay. I think there was a lot of sense relief for my family. <laughs> they were quite excited um, and very disappointed when it, it was back on, but uh, for me, I, I was disappointed when it was pulled off. And just just for a, a point of just um, point of reference, what uh, what what month and year did you actually go? April two thousand fifteen. Okay, April twenty fifteen. Got it. Yeah. So, what was your um, besides the you know the biggies? What was your biggest concern about going, or what were your friends and family saying? I'm worried about what. I think they were worried, you know, I would get imprisoned, uh, you know, for anything, that there was definitely tensions there. He was, at that time, he had just uh, shot off a few missiles. I mean, within weeks of me going, he was shooting off missiles again. Obviously, none of them had the range they do today. Um, but, it, you know, I was just, I think that was the biggest concern, that, that I would be arrested and held there, and then what? So I actually did go and get a, a policy to cover me in that event that I'd have negotiators come in. Because the U.S. government really can't do anything on your behalf. And I did notify the U.S. government before I left. And then I think it's the Swedish embassy you register with. And then I bought a policy, a kidnap and ransom policy, but specific for if I were to be arrested in North Korea. Who, uh... Did you just Google that? Did you Google <laughs> kidnap and ransom insurance policy? And yeah, well, it, just, it kind of came up, and then go, well, what, what if that happens? You know, who, who bears the cost of trying to negotiate with North Korea? I have no idea what that even looks like. So I just thought to be safe and maybe give my family a little bit of, of ease, I would go ahead and purchase that. And it was not cheap. I mean, that was probably more expensive than the entire trip itself. It was a few thousand dollars. Okay. Well. It's like either I buy this policy or I track down Liam Neeson's phone number. <laughs> I was definitely asking around if anybody knew him before I went. Right. Smart. Smart. Okay. So I uh, would just love to. Uh, so you were going there to run a marathon? Is 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 that the, is that what it was? Yeah, I did the half marathon, but the, they had a full marathon. So it was their second annual marathon that they allowed Westerners to come in and run. Um, and you're running against North Koreans, which, you know, they're in kids' shoes, right? I mean, they just don't have the equipment or technology that we do. And I will say they definitely outran me, I mean, by a long shot. So uh, that was really interesting. Well, I yeah, feel, it, was, it was just a, a marathon. I feel like... Marathon, I I feel like you want to sandbag that race anyway. You don't want to win. Yeah, you don't want to come out victorious. <laughs> well, not as an American. Not. And everything on the inside is about how much they can't stand America. I mean, you're in the elevator in a hotel, and they have videos playing of you know them bombing U.S. aircraft carriers, photos everywhere, and uh, signs up. So it's just it's very odd. Yet they're very friendly to Americans, and they'll tell you that to your face. Like, oh, we like Americans. We don't like America. Okay. So they like Whatever the pe- they like the people, but not the idea of America. Correct. And hmm. they said we we don't like your government, but you're fine. So. But but you seem great. All right. So <laughs> so so the plane lands. You're now in uh-huh. uh, you're now in North Korea, and you're like clutching your insurance policy. The the doors <laughs> open and and just sort of give us your initial impressions and kind of the narrative uh, of. of- yeah, so you go through immigration, which is kind of like a, a little third world country-esque. You know, there's not really high technology or anything of that sort. 
Um, they open up your luggage. They go through everything. You have to fill out a form reporting any kind of electronics you're bringing in, cell phone, iPads, laptops, those kinds of things. I actually did not bring a cell phone with me. I just didn't want, you know, I didn't want any personal information of, of mine there. So they thought that was really odd when I got there that I didn't have a, a phone. And they asked me a couple of times. Um, and then once you register everything, you know, you can move on. You have to register your cameras, too, so you're not allowed to take pictures of everything. Everything's, you know, very sanctioned on what you can and can't do. And then we walked outside and we waited for the rest of the group to go through immigration. And while you're standing there, they're building a new, or they were at the time, building a new uh, airport right next to the one that we landed at. And it looked very pretty, you know, glass and, and modern, but, uh, you know, hundreds of men in, in uniform One's carrying a shovel, one's carrying a rake, one's carrying a bucket. And, you know, they'll have one item, not multiple, but just one. And they're walking very fast and briskly as if they've got something very important to do with this whole construction. And all of a sudden, they go around the side of the building where we're standing, and they all sit down and take a break. It was like it was all fake and put on for us. So that was kind of the first weird thing that you went, oh, that's mm. odd. <laughs> okay. Um, and there was more of that, right? Everything there was kind of, it, it felt like it was, they did things for you, right, to make it appear a certain way. And so it was just really odd. Just, I've never seen anything like that in, in that large of a, a country or, or people, you know, mass people, just all kind of orchestrated. Yeah, from there we went to, uh, did a little tour. And on your buses, everybody has a, oh, you have minders. So a minder is, I guess, a babysitter in essence. But uh, you can't go anywhere without them. You can't go within 100 feet of them. You have to ask permission to use the restroom. You can't talk to any locals, and everything is, is definitely on lockdown. And they carry a photo with you, with, of you with them in their pocket, so they know exactly who you are. It says where you're from, um, what state you're from within the U.S., uh, and just, yeah, kind of a little bit of background on you. So, and they also take your passport when you arrive, which is also very uncomfortable. I can't imagine. Jeez. What was that? Yo, know, I, I I can only imagine you take your passport. That's got to be very unnerving. And how? Yeah. Just just so we know in in advance of, of you telling us your, your experience, how long were you going to be there for? I was there six days. Okay, so you're there six days. Got it. Okay. Yep. And, and when they take your passport, it's a little unnerving, but you're kind of excited to be there. And and when you see the production going on. It's kind of amusing, right? You're in awe of the whole thing that's happening around you. So you really don't worry, I guess, that much about the passport at that time. But as the days wore on, you know, you're ready to leave and like, oh, <laughs> I feel a little trapped. Um, which I, I didn't care for that towards the end. Six days was probably a little too long for me. You said um, you said about 2,500 at the time, 2,500 Americans go there annually. But any idea about how many world travelers are in North Korea? So you talked about what made me think about that is you talk about the airport. But I'm thinking, how often is that used? I can't imagine very often. I want to say I did look up the statistics on Westerners uh, that traveled there, and I don't recall the, those numbers off the top of my head. Gotcha. Um, but I think they were, you know, they. Everything there is meant for it to look a certain way. I mean, Pyongyang is, you know, very, there's all sorts of large buildings. They're beautiful uh, architecture, but they're all empty. Nobody's there. So it's not like they're serving a purpose other than to make it look, you know, bigger and more financially secure than it really is. Wow. Yeah. When you say there's nothing, there's really nothing in the buildings? 
No. Mm-mm. And half the time, uh, even in the hotel we stayed on, there was an American stay on an island uh, hotel, and we usually occupy one of the not-so-nice floors of the hotel. And I don't remember what floor I was on, um, but not all the floors are occupied, so the electricity is off on those floors. Sometimes the electricity just shuts off because they don't have enough to power everything. So even for the locals, you know, it's odd. In our country, you want to be, you know, on a penthouse of a, of a high-rise. Well, there you don't because there's no electricity. So you have to walk up and down, you know, 20, 30 flights of stairs. Probably not really what you want to do every day. Hmm. Okay. All right. So you are assigned, did you say one minder or was it two? We had three for our group. And, and, and there were 15 people in our group. All right. So three minders for the 15 of us. 15 folks in your group. Typically, I think you get two. Okay, got it. And yeah. were these, are, 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 are these minders around the same age? Are they males? Are they females? Tell me a little bit about them. Yeah, so we had uh, two male and one female minder and then a male bus driver. And the Miss Kim, she was young, I would say maybe late 20s, early 30s. And Mr. Kim uh, was probably about the same, and then Mr. Pock was older. He was, you know, maybe in the 60s, uh, maybe not that old, but he, he was definitely older than the other two and more experienced. So as you um, as you went through, what were some of the moments where you and the, the fellow people in your group were just like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> well, the first one is, you know, you're, we ran the race, right? So and if you did the half marathon or the full marathon, you ended in a stadium with 40,000 people. And I will say, when I finished that moment, they all have colored paddles that they're throwing up and clapping and cheering. And it's really an amazing moment until you realize that it's not about you. You know, they're not, they're, they're not excited to see you run. Um, there was a soccer match going on in the middle of the, of the <laughs> that I ran around. So I kind of laughed after I figured that out. And uh, you know, when you finish, you're waiting for everybody else to finish their race. And so I'm sitting in the stands watching the soccer match. And as I look around, I notice that nobody's even watching a soccer match. The soccer match is put on to keep us entertained. But each row had a, a person at the bottom of the row pulling out which color to hold up and how to clap based on how the game was going. So, you know, whether anybody knew how to how soccer actually was supposed to be played out or if they even cared, but it was really more of a job for them. And that moment you go, oh my gosh, you have 40,000 people in the stadium that are working. This is very fascinating. Wow. Yeah. Or then I think that the moment after that was you really don't see any animals and you don't notice that you don't see any animals until we were at a, an outdoor um, area and we heard birds. And we kind of looked at each other for a second like, oh, I actually haven't heard birds in, I don't know, for a while. And you look up in the trees and they're actually just speakers. Speakers playing birds down. No birds. <laughs> so there's, there, I mean, we didn't see any animals or birds. I think I saw one squirrel once in six days. So Where are the animals? What was that? Where are the animals? My assumption is that they probably eat them. Uh, I mean, there's definitely, you can tell that they're not well fed, especially when they're outside of Pyongyang. It's very poor. Uh, if you if you can't live in Pyongyang, your resources are pretty limited. So wow. I would assume they're eating them. Yeah. Just a quick... Or maybe there's not enough food there for the, for the animals either. I don't know. Yeah, it's probably a mutual thing. Uh, uh, but on the other end, which is very odd, is there are some wealthy people in Pyongyang that have dogs as 
animals. I mean, like a little Bichon or a Maltese or a Yorkie. And not that there were many of them, but there were definitely some that would walk them around on the leash. And that was kind of like a trendy thing. If you had money, you could show off your status by having a dog, which they eat dogs in North Korea. So I, thought, I found that to be interesting. Yeah, no kidding. That was yeah. my understanding of uh, a little bit of research that I did in advance of our conversation is that Pyongyang is essentially the only place in the entire country, which you've already made mention of, that there's any kind of a standard of living. Out of the, roughly speaking, 25 million people that live in North Korea, half of them live in absolute abject poverty. And the country itself is the size of Pennsylvania, but only 20% of the land is farmable. I think that the term that I actually had to look up is arable, um, and the rest of it is just pretty much unusable. So that explains probably the lack of animals. So I think it's also very, um, very interesting to, to to hear that story about the folks in the in the in the soccer stadium that were sort of being told how they should be acting. From what I've heard about North Korea, it seems as though everybody that lives there is essentially having to be an actor and having to play along, having to cry when the when uh, Kim Jong Un's father passed away and mourn for weeks having to, to get excited at the soccer games, having to, to act busy in front of the Americans, all that. Um, perhaps, the, perhaps the best way for you to have access to what's really going on was maybe through your minders. What was your feeling about them and how they felt about living in North Korea? Yeah, I mean, they're very closed off. I would, I would say they're probably more, I mean, they're government employees. They, they want tips, so they try very hard to make the experience meaningful for you, but at the same time, they have minders, and their minders have minders. I mean, everybody is being watched, and it's really crazy once you start to realize just, you know, how watched everybody is. And so they would stress out, you know, trying to, to allow us to have a good time. We would ask questions. They would feel uncomfortable answering you could see that in their facial expression, but they're also asking you very personal questions. And at the end of every day, they go write a narrative about you down, right? The three of them would meet, they would pass, you know, pass around your passport and take notes. So it felt like they were working for the government to try to get information out of you as much as you were asking them questions. So it felt really kind of odd and not, not like a normal interaction with a guide. It, it, it was definitely weird. And I think for me personally on you know, day four, I could not wait to go home. I'm like, I can't do this anymore. This is weird. Like, I don't, you know, for me, I was there in essence by myself. And so they kept asking me why an American girl who looks like me would show up by herself to North Korea. Well, not really by myself, but, you know, the, my two friends were, you know, they were together hanging out and, and, you know, doing their own thing. So it just appeared that I looked by myself. It was just very odd. Was there a... Um... So as far as like kind of um, entertainment and things to do, is there a nightlife? Like what, what are the people when they're not, you know, putting on a show and acting, what do they do? 
for fun or for leisure? Well, you can't really have leisure time there, from my understanding. Um, you know, you can't congregate, which is why they don't like religion. Um, they don't want people, you know, groups of larger than five to congregate because they're afraid you're going to, you know, try to overthrow the government or have you know, things going on that the government doesn't allow or doesn't want. So um, you really can't do much, and the life seems sad. I mean, it didn't, it didn't seem, and you're, you're starving, so I don't know that you have the energy to go out and dance or live it up. It was just very odd. So they thought you were a spy, pretty much. <laughs> that's kind of how I felt. I came <laughs> before, and I'm like, oh man, are they going to let me go? Oh, I hope I can go home. They're uh, they're yeah. they're looking at you. They're trying to do the math, and it's just not adding up. So <laughs> no, right. Well, at one point, and, and I was single at the time that I went. Uh, you know, the one minder, the older gentleman, he would start asking me a lot of questions while I was there. Did I have a boyfriend? And I said, no. And then, you know, he asked me if I hated men. And I kind of laughed. And I said, not yet. <laughs> but who knows in a couple more years. And uh, But then he wanted to talk to me about romantic love. And not in a weird way, but in a way that that was the only time that somebody really opened up, right? He said, I, I never, growing up in North Korea, he went into the military, which I guess is what everybody does. He goes, I'm training out in, in uh, the mountains. And he goes, and then you come back and he's like, you just get married. I mean, there's not really this romantic thing at all. It's just what you do. And he goes, and then I see the Westerners and they're holding hands and they're cuddling. And he's like, I just think that's really neat. We don't have that here. Just we've never been taught that. And he wished for his kids that they could have that experience that Westerners have, which I thought was really interesting for him to, to talk about. Yeah. Did you get a lot? So tell us a little bit more about some of the, um, kind of views they had about not just Americans, but Westerners in general. So what were some of the maybe stereotypes that bubbled up or some of the things that they said that you're like, that's not quite true or you're right on point on that. So just walk us through that. Yeah. I mean, they really didn't comment much except for it was very clear and evident that they did not like the U S and even the Westerners, the Europeans would come and say, does that bother you? No, I don't really, yeah, it is what it is. I mean, that's their viewpoint. I found it odd that, you know, for us at that time, they really weren't very relevant. And But to them, we were very relevant. We were the enemy. Um, and everything that's being portrayed inside is that the U.S. government is harsh and mean and cruel, and the dear leaders are very kind, right? They let the Americans go when they're captured, and they don't deserve to be let go, but because of the kindness of the dear leaders, they let, they let the American prisoners go. Um whether they were spies or otherwise. Um, so it's, just a, it's an interesting story on the, on the inside. Um, they do, your minders will drink with you one, one night, and apparently it's kind of the same every time. You know, they'll drink with you one night at the DMZ. Now, why the DMZ, I don't know. So we had a few beers, and the younger minder, I mean, he was getting upset. I don't even know how the conversation got there, but he wanted to tell me that his military was by far better than the U.S. military and that they would crush us if the U.S. ever tried to do anything. So, okay, well, I mean, I, that's, I don't know what your military can can't do. I don't you know, really know much about it, but okay. So he was, that, that was the only time that really it got heated. You know, he just he was very adamant that they were better than us. So I didn't argue. I just kind of sat there and drank my beer. Stay, stay in the shallow water on that one. It's like right. I did not win the I did not win the marathon. I, mean, I just want to go home. Yeah, right. and I'm not going to tell the guy that our military is better than his. Right. 
Well, you know, I and I the, the reality of North Korea is that it's an absolute dictatorship and it has been for a very, very, very long time. There's 16,000 work camps that have 200,000 prisoners that are North Korean working there. So, I mean, it's just wow. You can't even imagine. Well, you you can imagine because you were there, but you can't imagine what it is like to actually live there um, under an oppressive regime where there's three television channels, two of which are only shown on the weekends. And I think that they have something like 30 websites on North Korean internet. Um, so, I didn't even know that there was internet allowed there at the time. You could get it at the hotel, but it was not widely available when I was there. Um, and, sure. and then they do, I mean, they have to wear pins and the dear leaders over their hearts. I mean, it's definitely a dictatorship and just, you know, they can only, they have to call them either dear or great. They have to, before they say their name, they have to put a favorable term in front of it. Did the, did the minders or any folks that you were, were able to talk to, did they have any aspirations of, or let me ask this, did they seem pretty content with their lives in North Korea or did they have uh, dreams or aspirations of perhaps, you know, migrating elsewhere if they were able to? Oh, they, they wouldn't have that conversation with us. It would, it. it would be too risky for them. Gotcha. So, and they, to be honest, for North Korean standards, they made quite a bit of money and they hmm. would never jeopardize, which they never... They wouldn't jeopardize losing that job because that job provides their family a wealth, you know, not comparable to ours, but comparable to others within the country that, you know, they can eat. Um, and they're definitely, they look healthier, right, because they're, they have access to food that other people don't have. Hmm. Oh, I'm sure it's a very sought-after job. What would you say yeah, is the, I, uh, I mean, the most most startling or surprising or shocking thing that that, that you came across? It was really how orchestrated everything was. I just thought it was odd. I mean, you've got people that have to wear the same dress. You know, they all have to wear a, a pin of the cheerleaders. Um, hairstyles are very similar. I mean, just there was no no creative uh, thinking ability, right? There was no art anywhere. Um, you know, the art was all propaganda, but that was it. So it was just, it was very odd that you you forget how much. You, you, I guess you take for granted being an American and just walking out. You know, I, I don't have to tell you I need to use the restroom. I can just go to the restroom. What difference does it make? What do you care? But there, when I got scolded, all three of them went searching for me, and they would have gotten in you know, trouble had I not shown up for, for lunch, and so it, became, it created an issue. <laughs> and at the hotel, I just went to use the restroom. I don't – so I literally had to ask every time. That was that was just weird. Like, I didn't – the things you don't, you don't realize how well you actually have it. Uh, until you see it, you experience it differently. No kidding. Right when we started talking, you, re you referenced seeing videos of their Air Force or whatever bombing our, our boats or whatever, or cities. Um, tell me a little bit about the propaganda. Was it posters? It was videos. Where were these? Sure. Uh, propaganda posters everywhere, uh, paintings on the side of buildings. Um, yeah, I mean, just some of it, you know, you go to, there's a museum you go to, it's the, um, the War Museum, and they have I mean, pretty graphic pictures of Americans being shot and dead, uh, just really, really graphic and uncomfortable, to be honest. Uh, just, we wouldn't display that here because it, it's too graphic for audiences for us. So, and then the, the video is, is played in the 
elevator in the hotels for the, for the guests. So again, mm-hmm. it's just all about how great their military is and could defeat ours mm-hmm. given the chance if yeah. we provoked them. Got it. Yeah. Well, that's the necessary narrative, I, how, uh, I uh, suppose. And how they won the war. What was that? I suppose that's a, a necessary narrative. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> but, yeah, the oddest thing for me was really just without creativity, how are you ever going to be a world power? How are you, how are you ever going to change your situation? How do you feed people? Mm-hmm. Uh, they're taught to respond and to answer yes and not to think. And so that was really a sad moment when you know, they couldn't be creative. And if they did, they would get in trouble. So everybody just kind of toes the line and you go, okay, this is interesting. And, and running a business, I related it to the business and said, you know, how do I not make so many rules and regulations that it mm-hmm. stifles everything else for, you know, a small few unit for everybody instead of making rules for a small few. Why don't we just address the small few? Got it. Would you do it again if you had the chance? Um, maybe not today. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I probably would, to be honest. I, I'm not, not again. If I hadn't gone, would I go? Uh, potentially. I mean, now it seems a little more risky than it was, you know, then. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't go a second time. I think, you know, I was a one and done. I'm good. <laughs> if, if you were able to to go back for the first time, knowing what you knew now, mm. what what would you do differently? I would probably ask more questions. Um, yeah, I didn't I didn't watch the intern. I didn't read anything. I wanted to go in with as little knowledge as I could, just so I could experience it. You know, for the first time with, with no preconceived or, or I guess little preconceived notions. Um, but now that I've been there and experienced it and I've seen it, I would just be curious. Like, well, what is your job really like? Well, you know, how do you feel about, you know, holding up a color paddle and that's all you do all day? How do you make more money? How, you know, why do people in Pyongyang seem to be more well off than the people in the rural areas if everything is supposed to be equal? Mm. I don't know that they would answer those questions, but I would definitely ask them more questions. Got it. And I, I, I recall you telling me a story that I was really surprised by with one or two people in your group that were, for lack of a better term, acting out. Um, sure. And, and, <laughs> and I was kind of surprised about that. And then the recent really terrible story of the young man Otto Warmbier, mm-hmm. University of Virginia, who was arrested for removing a propaganda poster and essentially beaten to death. Um, does that story, do you look back and say, wow, we sort of dodged a bullet or what's, what's your perspective on that? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been asked that a couple of times and we definitely had a rowdy group. You know, I don't, I can say being there, there were people that were arrested while I was there, you know, first day, second day, they were not with my group with the choreo tutors. Um, I will say choreo seemed to have pretty high-level connections to the North Korean government, so they were always called in to help negotiate on behalf of other groups. Um, and it just so happens we, the guy that ran my specific group of 15 was the head guy for that group. Uh, 
so it felt safe with him because it was almost like nobody would do anything. Nobody would get arrested as long as he was there and kind of protecting us in a way. I don't know how to explain it other than that. Um, so I don't, you know, I, I think it is unfortunate. I don't know. I, I, I feel terrible about Otto. I mean, I just, uh, I can't say I couldn't see it happening. It just, it didn't happen in my experience. And my group was, you know, saying things about the dearly earth they probably shouldn't have been. Mm. They were using profanity towards some of the minors. I mean, I definitely had a rowdy group, but, uh, you know, again, I think we happen to be with the right, the right people, uh, for that. Well, it definitely sounds like it. Um, how do you spell the name of the tour company? <laughs> uh, K-O-R-Y-O. Got it. Choreo Tour. Yeah. And you would certainly recommend them to anybody who is interested in going to North Korea, I would imagine. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, again, at the time that I looked them up, they were 20 plus years, the longest tour operator to North Korea, and they'd never had an incident. Uh, I know I looked at Dennis Rodman. Uh, company that he went with and they actually had an incident so I chose not to go with the same group um, mm. but yeah Corio at that time had no nothing on their record so I felt safe with them and, and specifically you'd want to go with you know Simon or, or Nick the, the owner I mean they seem to again be very well connected and um, kind of move through and, and you know it, there was an incident with another another tour operator one of their um people opened up the window in the hotel and the window fell out. So the, the window was oh. broken, but the hotel tried to charge them, I don't know, three or $400 to fix the window. And so Simon came over and he's like, you guys, this is ridiculous. Why would you charge them that? And I'm like, well, because they broke the window. And he's like, you can't prove that. He's like, your hotel's old. He's like, the window fell out. And so they, they looked at him and they were really baffled and like, well, what do we, what do, we do? And he's like, you, you pay for it on your own. Like, he doesn't owe you the money. And so then, you know, it kind of went escalated, and I'm not sure what happened. But at the end of the day, I don't believe that they ever paid money for it. And it just seemed obvious to us, but what seems obvious to us, you know, they don't have a lot of tourism, so it wasn't as obvious to them. But, you know, nobody else could get them to, to agree to that except for Simon. So, um, again, I think he, they're just very connected there. They've been doing it for so long. So you were there for um, an athletic trip. And what are some of the reasons or some of the um – the groups that have that were going then, and and if you keep up on it now, so I'd, I'd imagine there's a very specific reason or a very specific kind of access to that. Your group being one of them. What are what are some of the other people doing there? That go to visit. Yeah. Um. They have well. So of course your group has. I, I get their emails, I and mean, they have tours all the time. Some of it's for skiing uh, during ski season. Some of it's for. Um, they have. I guess some. I don't know if they're world games or some kind of games. They have uh, ceremonies for the dear leaders, so you can go back and see those, the flower ceremonies, things like that. That look pretty, but, uh, yeah, again, I probably wouldn't go back, but there are definitely options there. I think there's, you know, a couple of times a year they have some kind of big event there. Got it. I, I know that we've certainly asked you a lot of questions, but what are important things about your experience that we haven't asked uh, that that maybe people should know? Well, I don't know. I mean, it, just, it reminded me of the Hunger Games, I guess. <laughs> mm. <laughs> you wanted to know what it was like to be uh, in part of the book. That's the way it felt in North Korea. I mean, it definitely felt like a dictatorship and, you know, 
it was just, it was the weirdest experience. So, um, I'll probably never experience anything like it again in my life. I hope not. Um, but yeah, fascinating, I guess. Technically, I guess, I think it was at that time, you know, before auto was really the safest place you could be because the, the death rate is fairly low and crime is almost non-existent there. And literacy rate is 100%. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure, yes. It, 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 at least that's what they tell people. At so. least that's what they say. <laughs> well, it was really odd because you're not allowed to talk to anybody. I mean, at all. Um, until, I mean, to use the restroom at one point, they had to clear out a train station for us so that we could use the restroom. And it was, you know, you're upsetting quite a few people. I mean, hundreds of people that are waiting to get on these trains. It was very odd. But there were a group of kids and some uh, some of our group members went over and took a photo with them and the kids were I mean they're kids right they, they don't know how to say no they're scared they're nervous and our group is you know strong minded people so they just went over there and like oh it's okay take a picture with us took a photo and rather than us get in trouble you know we see the, the police officer go over and ask for their cards so their parents would get punished for you know oh, for them wow. taking a photo with us so uh, I will say I, it was one thing about my group. They made the minders go back over and tell them that if anybody got punished, it should be us and not them, that they were children. And they didn't, you know, they didn't agree to it. They forced it on them. But um, I don't know what, how that exchange actually happened or what was said beyond that. But, yeah. Well, got it. Well, you know what? That's a, it's an awesome experience. I think whether it was positive or negative, certainly a, uh, one that very few people have, so. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I, I'm glad I, I checked it off my list. And I know that, that, I don't know if it's a proper term to say that you got bit by the travel bug a couple of years ago, but it seems like you do a lot of traveling. What is, what's what's the favorite place that, that you've been in the world? Oh, that's so hard. Um, I don't really have a favorite place. I have, you know, places that I like for different reasons. Um, but yeah, I don't really have a favorite place. At some point, the world just becomes the world. Hmm. Uh, sad part about traveling is it, is it loses some of its luster from that perspective. But at the same time, you realize you're just another human being on Earth and that we're all very similar uh, to each other looking for the same things. So I think that that's the cool experience about travel. But yeah, I, you know, I don't have a favorite beach anymore or maybe a favorite city. And you say that, that we're all human beings looking for the same kinds of things. What what are those things from traveling the world that that, 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 that you've learned? We all want the best for our family, right? So we all want our family and our kids to do better than we did. Uh, we want them to be safe. Uh, you know, I would I guess that's the thing that this is we're all working towards bettering our lives and the lives of the family members around us. Right. Nice. So you would say that you've certainly been, that, that your perspective has certainly benefited from your travels. Yeah, absolutely. And it was no different in North Korea. I will say the minders, you know, felt the same way about their families, right? They were working really hard and they would share stories about them uh, sharing their earnings with their siblings and parents and how proud they, they were that they were able to do that. Nice. Wow. Well, there's certainly there's certainly a lot of folks out there that that haven't traveled that that would like to, but they maybe it's the first step that that's that that's that's difficult. What 
what what would your advice be to somebody who maybe wants to get started traveling but just hasn't kind of gotten around to it? Mm. I would say go for the weekend. I mean, I think, you know, Americans either don't have time or don't have money. Um, and really, travel is cheap right now. You can get a ticket to Europe for $420 almost most places, right? You can go to Iceland for 300 out of L.A. or, you know, East Coast, uh, Dallas, same thing. So there's going to be a few states, you know, you might have to drive from Phoenix to L.A. if you want to save money, but even a cheap flight from Phoenix to L.A. is not bad. And then just go for the, you know, go for a weekend if you can, or three or four days. You know, I go on long weekends, so when I have three or four days off, I always try to go somewhere, whether that's Central America or Europe. I've been to Zurich for 24 hours and Sao Paulo for 24 hours. But you still get to experience the whole, the city, right? And I got out, I got to talk to people. You just show up without a plan, and you don't really need a hotel if you're going to sleep on the plane. <laughs> you can push yourself to the limit, but it'll get you out, and if you can start doing it, you realize it's not that bad. I've gotten two people to now do the weekend travel thing, and they go, oh, you know, I thought it was going to be terrible, but once you get into the groove, they're like, oh, it's totally doable. And so now both of them travel quite a bit. Nice. So your advice is just to just pull the trigger, just do it. Yeah, just do it. But I think everybody thinks if you go to Europe, you have to spend two weeks there. And if you only have two weeks, you know, you're going to spend it with your family at Christmas. I get that. So just just go for the weekend. Don't take any time off or take one day off and go over Fourth of July or Labor Day, Memorial Day, something like that. Nice. Is there a particular website or some sort of a resource that you would recommend people go to for economical flights or information or something like that? Yeah, I, I follow Boarding Area on Facebook. Uh, it's a group of, I don't know how many bloggers there are on there. So you can, you'll quickly see the deals that are coming up. Um, I think there's Flyer Talk. That's for a little bit more seasoned people. Uh, if you're asking basic questions, I've heard that they can kind of get a little annoyed with that. But Flyer Talk's a good one if you want to see what deals are out there. And then I, I you know, Google Flights is always good. There's... Uh, Skyscanner and Momondo, M-O-M-O-N-D-O. Those are pretty good aggregators that have some cheap flights. Nice. Great. And if you were, where is one place, I always like to know this, where is one place where you were pleasantly surprised? Like you you went there and didn't expect it to be as good or as interesting as you thought it would be. I would say recently I went to El Salvador and San Salvador, not really a place you want to stay, but there's a beach called El Tunco, and it just, there wasn't a lot of people there, it was a surf beach, so it just felt like I found a, a gem, right, that was a hidden gem that nobody knew about, and it's just a really cool place, and super, super cheap, and the people are fun, and they're just great people. Nice. Yeah. Well, Erica, we definitely appreciate your time and your insights. Is there anything else that you'd like to share? Yeah, I think, I think we covered it. I appreciate you guys. Thank you. This is great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again. If you enjoyed the show, please share it via social media. Tell a friend. Hit like. We appreciate your help. And as always, keep questioning because the struggle is real. <laughs>